Luke 17. They are challenging, they are important, they are critical to our life as a body. Jesus is not here teaching the Pharisees. He just taught them as they interrupted with their scoffing. He was teaching his disciples in chapter 16 about money. And they heard him and they loved money and they mocked and ridiculed. And so he rebuked them and he told them the story of the rich man and Lazarus and Father Abraham. We saw that last week. Now he turns back to his disciples. And what he gives them and he gives to us as his disciples is critical, mission critical for our life. Jesus is going back and forth, telling his disciples what to be, using the Pharisees as the negative example, the foil, if you will. You don't want to be like them. You'd be distinct from them. I'd like to read the first 10 verses of Luke 17, and then we'll begin our study looking at sin and forgiveness in the body of Christ. Luke 17, 1 through 10. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. Woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea and that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord said, if your faith, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and Dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So these ten verses form Jesus' instruction of his disciples, primarily focused on Dealing with the community of faith. Dealing with sin and forgiveness in the community of faith. Jesus gives a warning in the first two verses about tempting others within the body to sin. Don't do that. It's not good. Then what do we do when there is sin? Well, you go and rebuke it. What do you do when your brother asks for forgiveness and repents? You forgive. That's the primary instruction. As the disciples hear it and understand it, they understand Jesus' demands his ethic level to be so high, their response is then increase our faith. It's just to say, this is hard. This will be difficult. Because Jesus tells them, if you have genuine, real faith, you will be able to do this and much more. Moreover, as the final example the unworthy servants gives, this is the standard and the ethic across the board in Jesus' kingdom. This is the bread and butter of his people. This isn't exemplary service that when you have done this, when you have forgiven in this way, when you have rebuked in this way, when you have guarded yourself from causing others to stumble in this way, you have only done your duty. You have only done what is commanded. That's, that's the flow of this narrative. Now, there are many commentators who, for whatever reason, find the flow difficult. I think it's right there, plain as can be. How can Jesus' disciples stop from drifting and becoming like the Pharisees, who love money, who love the praise of man, well, they need to be on their guard lest they cause others to stumble, and they need to guard each other so that when any one of 
us starts to go astray, there's a self-correcting mechanism in place. And how do we stop bitterness and resentment from building up and causing schisms and division? There is abundant forgiveness. That's how Jesus' disciples stay pure, pure loaf, uncontaminated by the leaven of hypocrisy, uncontaminated by the love of money and the love of what other people think. And so this morning, we'll look at this in three points. Sin and forgiveness in the body of Christ. And let's dive in in verses 1 and 2. The first command, tempt not your brother to sin. Tempt not your brother to sin. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, and he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. What is Jesus saying here? Well, the first and obvious thing Jesus is saying is that temptations to sin will come. Life as a disciple, if you've lived more than a few moments in this world, there are all sorts of temptations to sin, to stumble, fall away. The word for temptations to sin is the Greek word that we get the English word scandal from. Scandalon is a stone of stumbling, something you can trip over and in a moral or ethical context, it's a cause for sin, a temptation for sin. If you drive on the highway, um, you see billboards. Those are strategically designed to create coveting and discontent. They are temptations to sin in many respects. The advertising world is designed for that. But they're all over the place in, in so many contexts. And Jesus says, as a realist, they, they will come. It is impossible. The temptations, causes for offense and stumbling do not come. But they ought not, point one, temptation to sin ought not to come from within the body of Christ. Temptation ought not to come from within the body of Christ. It is, it is inescapable, it is inevitable, but it ought not to be what we do when we gather together. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us not to forsake gathering together, but give thoughts to spur one another on to love and good deeds. The body, rather than causing um, occasions for stumbling and sin, should be the opposite. Occasions for perseverance, faithfulness, joy, love, hope. One of the reasons we gather together is so that we can speak the truth and love to each other, build each other up in the faith, cause each other's faith to grow. And so Jesus warns against the danger that from within there will come temptations to sin. It ought not to come from within inside the body. 1 John 2.10 says this, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Same Greek word. If we are loving each other, there will be within us no cause for stumbling, no stone of stumbling, no temptation to sin. T turning your Bibles to Romans 14. This is a big issue. One of the reasons why Jesus emphasizes this so much is this really is the bread and butter of life in the community. If we're going to live together and if we're sinful, and we are, that we're going to need to understand how to approach that. In fact, as you turn there, I commend to you a series Pastor Daniel and I did a few years ago about dealing with sin in the body, sin and sanctification, where we take a lot of these themes more extensively. How, how do we as Christians deal with it? I want to see what the Apostle Paul says, because this is a big deal. Causing others to sin, tempting others to sin, is no small matter. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 14, pick it up in verse 13, all the way through 19. 
Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block, same word, or temptation to sin or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. We don't think of temptation in those terms, do we? Destroying another believer. Destroying their faith. Tearing it down. Damaging their faith. So let not what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So let us pursue what makes for peace, mutual upbuilding. Mutual upbuilding is put in contrast with stumbling. And so Paul takes most of Romans 14 to deal with this issue of us using our liberty, us using our freedom, us focusing not on maximizing what I can do and my rights, but rather serving so as to be careful not to tempt another to sin. How, what are some of the ways we can tempt others to sin? Well, I think it can be overt. It can be the, the young man or young woman trying to entice their opposite partner to doing more than they ought to do before they're married in the back of their car or something. That, that's an obvious way. It can be the Bible speaks about those who t entice others to drink. Or it can be something as simple as gossip. Now, let's just take, take gossip from them. What happens when you gossip? When I give a bad report of somebody else, According to James, I become a judge of the law, and I sit in judgment on them. And I'm inviting this other person to despise their brother, their sister, and their heart, to think evil of them. And if they listen to my gossip, they will now generate this negative, evil opinion of this person, and that, that judgment will show up in the way they treat them. It will spread. But we don't think of it that way. We just think of it as sharing a prayer request. Jesus says here, moving on to the next point, before we tempt another to sin before we cause an offense of stumbling it would be better to no stone or hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea and that she should cause one of these little ones to sin again I, I don't think I regularly think of things in these terms I mean, how much more emphatic can you get blank here is it would be better to die better for you to die I might add, die horrifically, violently, terribly. And if you to cause another believer to stop. And if we believed that, Jesus, what if Jesus meant what he said here? We would be much more careful about the way we interact, the things we see, the examples we set. We have to be building each other up, not causing one another to sin. It can be done in so many and subtle ways. Jesus warns his disciples, look, the world is going to be rough enough. The enemy is going to be rough enough. We don't need it to come from within. And yet, the Apostle Paul in Acts 20 warns the church that exactly that is what happens. He meets with the leaders of Ephesus and he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples' action. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Temptations to sin are inescapable. They ought not to come from within. 
And Jesus gives us, I think, some hints at why. That phrase, little ones. Um, some people, I don't think Jesus is all of a sudden switching to children. I don't think he suddenly bumps up a child on his lap. Rather, he's already referred to his disciples this way. Listen to the uh, same word in Luke um, 7. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least, that's your word, in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Or Luke 12, 15. I'm sorry, 12.32. Fear not, little flock. Same word. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus' disciples had just been ridiculed by the Pharisees as they saw that tax collectors and sinners were coming. And so Jesus is saying, in direct contrast, after the story to the Pharisees, remember going back and forth from the Pharisees, here's this rich man who despised Lazarus. Take the most least and despised Christian least worth and repute and value and reputation. It's better to tie a millstone around your neck, jump into the ocean, and cause that least one to stumble. Why? Because these little ones are precious in God's sight. Because these little ones are precious in God's sight. I mean, haven't we been seeing that through God's heart for the little ones? God's heart for the woman who came in and, and wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. The heart of a father who sees his prodigal son returning and runs to embrace him and kiss him. The heart of a shepherd who, seeing one sheep is lost, goes and searches for it. These little ones are precious in God's sight. And so bear that in mind. The people sitting next to you are precious in God's sight. The girl that you're pursuing to marry is precious in God's sight person you're thinking about sharing the juicy gossip with is precious in God's sight. Point two, God is very jealous for his people. God is very jealous for his people. The jealousy of God is one of those doctrines that we don't generally like to teach or expound upon. It's a wonderful truth. It is something that should fill you with joy and something that should fill you with fear. Um, it's actually an exposition on the jealousy of God that got me married. But that is a story from another time. Absolutely true. But the, the, the point of God's jealousy is that because his people are precious to him, he takes it very personally when others would attack them. In fact, throughout the scripture, whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye, God says. Isn't that the whole point of, of chapter 15 in Luke? The, the Pharisees scoffed and mocked and ridiculed because they despised the sinners and the tax collectors. And Jesus tells them the three parables to show them, no, God is more concerned with them and their repentance than 99 like you. And so we'd be warned, well to be warned, before we think of causing another believer to stumble. Listen, one specific example Paul gives in 1 Thessalonians is sexual immorality. And frequently, that is the case, one person enticing another person to do more than they ought to do. Listen to the argument Paul gives in 1 Thessalonians 4, the jealousy of God being brought into bear. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in the matter because the Lord 
is an avenger. And all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this command, disregards not man, but God, gives his Holy Spirit to you. Do you hear what Paul is saying? the church at Thessalonica. If you're going to go beyond and defraud your brother or sister, wrong them, you're not going to control your body and passion, God will avenge. You're not disregarding Paul, he says, you're disregarding God, and God will avenge. God is jealous for his people. We can delight in that. If you're Christ, you are precious in his sight, and he will jealously guard you as a good shepherd. But if you're considering... A stumbling block in front of a brother or sister, watch out because God is a good shepherd. See how that one truth can be both a delight and something to make us tremble? God's jealous God, these little ones are very, very precious to him. So that, that's that's the first point. It's bad enough if you're gonna sin, if you're gonna lead others, you might as well go tie a millstone around your neck and jump into the ocean. Okay, but what happens when that doesn't work? What happens when there actually is sin in the body? Well, Jesus goes on next to address that. So the first warning is to stop temptations to sin from happening. But Jesus, again, is a realist. And he knows that as much as he warns and exhorts, it will happen. So what now? Somebody has not been careful. Someone has not been cautious. Somebody has put a stumbling. Someone has stumbled. Or perhaps the cause of the temptation came from outside the body. Regardless, somebody in the body has stumbled. They have sinned. Now what? Verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. Brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Point 2, rebuke your brother in sin. We get really uncomfortable with this. Jesus' directions here are simple, straightforward, but clear, not complicated. And yet I, I suggest that some these commands are some of the most difficult and challenging that he gives. And I think he gets that too, which is why he gives that warning at the beginning. He doesn't just say, if your brother sins, rebuke him. He says, pay attention to yourselves. Be on your guard. What's the implication? This will be difficult. It's be hard. Where, where does this come from? I think here, Jesus is unpacking Leviticus 19. If you keep your, keep your finger here, go back to Leviticus 19. And all we do, I'll tell you how I get there. If you remember back a few chapters in Luke, Luke 10, a, a, a man rose up to test Jesus. As you turn to Leviticus 19, a lawyer stood up and put it into the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response to that man is, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. That's the, from the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 and your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Elsewhere, Jesus refers to Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 as the first and second greatest commandments, respectively. So already in Luke's gospel, Jesus tells a man who summarized the entire law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says that is a good summary of the law. And yet, when we go back to Leviticus 19 to look and see what it means to love your neighbors yourself, I think you may be surprised. Because in the first instance, loving your neighbors yourself, according to Leviticus 19, is not about giving someone a ride to the hospital. It isn't about giving food to the hungry. 
It isn't about taking in the cold, the naked. What is it about? Let's read Leviticus 19, verses 17 through 18. And remember, the biblical Bible's often used pattern of not this, but this. Put off, put on. Don't do this, do this. And by putting them together, I think you'll get a picture of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason with your neighbor, frankly, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay, let's put that together. Don't hate in your heart. Don't take revenge. Don't get bitter and develop a cold shoulder. What do you do? No reason fine with your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see that? The blank here, point A, love your neighbor as yourself. This is Jesus teaching her in Luke 17, simply fleshing this out. What do you do when your neighbor sins and offends you? Well, you got options, right? You can, you can bury that in and either get angry and take revenge or develop bitterness and a cold shoulder. Those are two forms of hatred, active and passive. The active form, I'm going to get you back. The passive form, you know what? You're dead to me. I'm not going to talk to you. That's hatred. You're hating your brother. Hating your sister. Or you can go reason frankly with them and love your neighbor as yourself. In its original context, the second greatest commandment is telling us, hey, go talk to your neighbor. And I think in our experience, that is some of the most difficult fruit for us to bear. Turn, turn back to Luke 17. Jesus recognizes this. I mean, this is, after all, the second greatest commandment. Second greatest commandment. Let's go, don't, don't get mad. Don't bear a grudge. Don't get bitter. Go talk to him. Reason frankly. Brother sins, go rebuke him. This will, here's your blank, be difficult and require vigilance. This will be difficult and require vigilance. Jesus warns us of that. This is, he's warned us periodically. Back in chapter 12, he gave a similar warning. Take heed, be on your guard against all forms of covetousness. Jesus is identifying those sins, those attitudes that will creep in most readily, that we will require vigilance for. This won't come naturally. This won't be easy. If you're not alert for this, it won't happen. But we all know that. If I can avoid a difficult or awkward conversation with someone, I generally try to. And yet that is not loving. It's difficult. So understand, Jesus gets it, it'll be difficult. It's why he gives that command. Yet, point, the second point here, to fail in this is to hate the brother. And I think that that is key for us to understand. Jesus, in fleshing this out, told the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan. We think generally of hate in regards to, I want you to die. I'm mad at you. That's more biblical understanding of anger or wrath. In, in the story of the Good Samaritan, loving your neighbors yourself, because the man says, who is my neighbor? So Jesus tells the story. What do the two men who hate simply do? They just walk on by, right? There's nothing in there but them wishing ill to the guy who's beaten on the side of the road. They just look at him and think, that's going to slow me down. I'm going to get messy. I'm going to get blood on me. That's going to be costly. And that's what we think, too. We see someone in sin. We see someone 
not doing what they ought to do, and they realize, man, if I go talk to them, this could take some time. This can get messy. This can get awkward. Get some dirt on them. I can't be bothered. I got places to go. I'm like the scribe, the Levite, walk by. He hates. We, we got to get that. That there is no third option. Well, I neither love them nor hate them. Nope. According to 1 John 4.20, you see one of the two. And so to fail in this is to hate your brother. This is critical for the body. Because if we don't, if we let pockets of sin rise up in our midst, we'll spread, according to 1 Corinthians 5, like leaven and the whole loaf will be leavened. I want you to, want to knock one other misconception out of our heads. We are so conditioned to think this is a bad thing. I and mean, I know that we're uncomfortable even right now as we're talking. Because we so equate rebuke with something harsh, something unkind, something unloving. There's a couple of reasons for that. One of them, my old pastor um, and mentor used to say, the problem is that he with the sore toes goes. What he meant was, generally, because we put off confrontation, we put off rebuke as long as we possibly can, we generally don't go driven by conviction and a love for God and a love for the individual. We generally go when we've had enough. When my toes got stepped on one too many times, and you know what, I'm done, go talk to him. And of course when you go in your own anger, and of course when you go in your own offense, bad fruit will be the result. But the problem is it becomes a feedback loop because if the only times you've ever corrected someone are when you've been ticked off, and of course that went badly, what does that reinforce? The notion that confrontation is always ugly and bad. But listen to first, sorry, listen to Psalm 141.5. Okay? Let a righteous man strike me it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head, and let my head not refuse it. Now listen to that. Loving rebuke is kind. We must never think sometimes we're kind, and sometimes we're gracious, and sometimes we're loving, and sometimes we got to go confront people. Loving rebuke, not all rebuke, but loving rebuke is, according to Psalm 141, Cut is a kindness. There is no either or. Sometimes we love and sometimes we're kind. Notice, by the way, that Jesus doesn't say only some sins or big sins or really terrible sins. He just says your brother sins, forgive him. Correct him. Or listen to Proverbs 28:23. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Notice the contrast. It's not whoever rebukes a man, da 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 da, versus the one who loves. And we tell ourselves we don't confront out of love, out of grace, out of patience. Proverbs identifies it as flattery. How does that work? People like to think well of themselves. Part of the reason why people don't like to be corrected is when you correct me, you show me some flaw in my life. Just earlier this week, someone showed me something ugly in my life. It wasn't pleasant. I didn't like seeing it. I would much rather have continued to think everything was fine. But let's flip that around. Imagine I got a big piece of cream cheese sitting on my mustache. Or a piece of toilet paper stuck to my shoe, right? Now it's embarrassing. But believe me, if that's what's going on, I want to know about it. I want to get the cream cheese off my mustache. I want to get the piece of toilet paper off my shoe. And you do me no kindness if for fear that... And it's true. In the moment that I see it, I'll feel foolish. In the moment that I see the cream cheese, in the moment that I see the toilet paper, I'm going to feel like an idiot then I can take it off and stop feeling stupid. And there's a sense in which you're flattering me. 
if you allow me to continue to think everything's fine when it's not. And same thing here. Even though we want to think it's love that stops us from correcting people, it's not. If you're truly a Christ follower, you want to please God. If there's some way that you don't see that you're sinning, I want to know about it. If it's me, I want to be acceptable to Christ. I want to please my Savior and my Master. And as long as you don't come to me like a jerk, judgmentally, but you come in a spirit of love, I want to hear it. And even though in the moment it's unpleasant, I can take the toilet paper off my shoe, I can wipe the cream cheese off my mustache, and not walk around looking like an idiot for the rest of the day. I can deal with my sin. I can move forward clean and cleansed. But we tell ourselves that it's not loving to do this. And we put these things at odds. Sometimes we be gracious and sometimes we confront. Well, I would suggest to you that it's really just sometimes we obey Jesus and sometimes we don't. Because he's really clear here. He's really clear. It's simple. It's the point. It's plain. Brother sins. You can. Now, that doesn't give us permission to be jerks. There's various ways we can give correction and rebuke. In, in 1 Timothy, um, Paul tells Timothy, don't sharply rebuke an older man, but appeal to him, plead to him as you would a father. There's different ways we can give rebuke. I correct my children differently than I correct my friends, differently than I might correct someone older than me. We've already seen in Luke's Gospel um, that we aren't to do it with a log in our eye. I mean, so here, rebuke must be given rightly. That's the next blank here. According to the right standard. So the first question, is it clearly sin? We don't rebuke over opinions. We don't rebuke over preferences. We don't rebuke over things that are not clearly sin. In fact, in counseling and talking to people, when I indicate, when I find that someone's upset with somebody, when somebody's been offended by somebody, one of the quickest things I try to get them to do is, okay, put it in the biblical categories. Name the sin. Are we dealing with sin or are we dealing with preference? They invited so-and-so and not me. Okay, what are you, what are you charging them with? Favoritism? No, I just didn't like it. Okay. Because love is not easily offended. So Jesus is, does not say, if your brother does something you don't like, go rebuke him. It's not what he says. If your brother sins. So the first question you've got to ask, are we dealing with an issue of sin? Clear sin. First Corinthians 13.7 says, Love hopes all things, believes all things, bears all things. It's not, do I suspect sin? No, clear sin. But if there's a clear issue of sin, you go talk to your brother by the right standard, and with the right motive, done to restore, not destroy. I think we can all tell the difference between somebody who is personally offended, who is personally mad, and somebody who's coming to us in love. One of the things my wife will sometimes say to me when she suspects that my anger at something, my irritation is unrighteous, is she'll ask me, it's right for her to do so, Dear, are you, are you just incensed because of the glory of God and my righteousness and my holiness? Or is it because you've taken personal offense? We can tell, can't we? We know. We know when somebody's upset you did to me of all people. And likewise, we can tell when someone talks to us and comes to us out of concern for our good. Again, I think that's why so much of our correction bears bad fruit, is we don't go because my Lord and Master Jesus gave me a command and I need to obey him. But we just wait until finally I've, you know, like Popeye, I've taken all I can stand and I can't stand no more, and we go. And, and not surprisingly, it's ugly. It just reinforces us to us, yeah, see, I knew. Correction is always bad. 
This is the heart of love. And I view the people in my life who've corrected me as the people who most dearly love me. The people that have had the courage to speak into your life with God's word, not just with pop psychology, with truth. Those people are the people who love you most dearly. Understand that. They're the ones who are most fully bearing out the second greatest commandment in your life, in my life. I'm done with the right motive, done to restore and not destroy. And Jesus corrected his disciples in Luke 6 about walking around a big log in their own eye and trying to pick specks out. Well, clearly the motive there is the superiority feeling of correcting something. According to Galatians 6, if anyone is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual ought to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. As to yourselves, the ensnared, sense of fear and humility and gentleness, all that's in place. So it's not that just you sort of rashly bold and I'm here to rebuke you. No, it can be done gently, it can be done in love, it can be done kindly, but it is done. It needs to be done. The Lord himself in his seven letters to the churches in Revelation and Five of the seven will commend what is good and say to this, I have against you. And they'll lay it out. And our body ought to be marked by that. This is the sign of a healthy body. How does a body stop from drifting, from be slowly becoming Pharisees? It's a body that self-corrects. First, we ourselves are looking to ourselves, lest there be some cause of stumbling in ourselves. And after that, notice again, first get the log out of your own eye. When we see clear sin in the believer's life, we come alongside them and we talk to them. That's, that's Jesus' command for sin and forgiveness in the body. The problem is I think many of us make an unwritten agreement. Instead of that, because that's pretty hard, how about this? I won't call you on your sin and you don't call me on mine, okay? I think in many cases, that's the sort of unwritten agreement we have. And so sort of impolite. And, we just kind of wait until really big stuff comes up. Well, I guess now we can't overlook it the other way, so now I gotta go deal and address it. Now, speaking to a brother or sister with God's word, coming alongside, I say, hey, I don't know if you noticed it, but I saw this. This is what God's word says. Maybe there's questions you've got to ask. What's going on? How can I help? Seems you've been losing your temper a lot more lately. What's going on? Is, is the mark of love? And so Jesus commands his disciples to do in contrast to the Pharisees. And he, he says, be on your guard. He knows this will be hard. He knows this will be difficult. And as the disciples grasp what he's saying, their response is, increase our faith. But yeah, this isn't easy stuff. I wouldn't expect the second greatest commandment to be easy. But it is important. It's clear. And the decision for us is will we love or hate our brothers and sisters? If God shows you something, you see clearly something that is wrong in a brother or sister, biblically. You walk by because, man, I'll get some dirt on my hands and slow me down. It'll be a mess. You are hating your brother or sister. What you're doing what I'm doing. And when someone comes to you and gives you something you don't want to hear, you don't like it, and I'll admit, well, earlier this week when somebody said something to me, they were largely dead on the money. I don't like it. It stung. I thought I was, you know, I like to think I've got things together and then you realize, oh man, I made a bungled something. It's not pleasant for the moment. But as we'll see in our next point, the reason why we rebuke our brothers to bring about repentance because repentance is what invites the restoration and forgiveness and that is good. So if I am going to do something wrong, I'd rather know about it so I can deal with it than not know about it. It may be better not to do something wrong. It's better that stumbling blocks don't come, but if you are going to stumble over one, 
the most loving thing someone can do is come and tell you. Rebuke your brother in sin. I just want to challenge you. How do you respond when people come to you that are loving you? They'll come in perfectly because they're terrified. I mean, I, I get the butterflies in my stomach when I got to go talk to somebody. I don't enjoy it. And people will come, they'll come in fear and they'll bungle this and be gracious. They're loving you. They're loving you. Love your brother, sister, enough to do this. I don't care if the last five times you've done this, it turned out badly. Have the faith to obey Jesus and trust that God might do something different the next time. Because God doesn't hold you or me responsible for how someone responds. What am I? In the passages in the Bible, I get the most mileage out of the 2 Timothy 2, 24. The Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, in gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. God might perhaps grant them repentance, leading to knowledge of the truth. God does not hold me responsible for whether they listen. God holds me responsible for being gentle, being patient, being willing to be wrong, and gently correcting. That's the scale which I get measured on. Whether or not they listen, God says, is up to him. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. God, God doesn't hold me responsible for that. He does hold me responsible for doing it and doing it in the right way. He holds you responsible as well for that. Okay. A lot more could be said here. This is the mark of love. The mark of love. The Church of Corinth prided themselves in their tolerance, being non-judgmental. They had a guy who was sleeping with his stepmother. And they're patting themselves on the back. How non-judgmental they were. How tolerant they were. And Paul rebukes them. Notice again one other thing. This is a standard for the body. This is if your brother. He said this to the disciples, if your brother. This is not a call to judge the world, to rebuke the world. Judgments begin in the house of the Lord. This is self-correction. Self-correction. Not, not the unbeliever down the street. Not the, your senator or congressman who irritated you. This is for the body, for us, for our good, so that we don't become the Pharisees. And, and one of the signs of the Pharisees is how did they like it when they were rebuked? They hated it. Why did they nail Jesus to the tree? Because he exposed their sin. And they could not have that. And to silence him, they murdered him. If you don't take correction well, Whose child are you evidencing you are? This correction shouldn't be frightening for us because the next point, because we should be the people of forgiveness. Now, one of the notes you might have picked up in Luke's gospel at this point that Jesus is hitting again, 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 and again is that of repentance, the central role of repentance. So Jesus has told the story of the tower that collapses in Salome. He says, you better repent too or worse things will happen to you. He likens the sinners and the tax collectors who come to him like a sheep that is found is like a sinner who repents. A coin that is found is like a sinner who repents. And you might think, what is this emphasis on repentance? The emphasis is this. Repentance is the condition of forgiveness. This is what brings it about. And so we move now to the third point. Forgive your brother of sin. So tempt not your brother to sin. Rebuke your brother in sin. Forgive your brother to sin. Now we're hardwired not to want to repent because we're used to when you finally admit a weakness, someone you know rubbing your nose in it. The exact opposite should happen to the church. When you go to your brother or sister and talk to them, when they repent, there should just be a, a celebration and a restoration just as there is with God. If they repent, first blank, you must forgive 
If they repent, you must forgive. Jesus teaches a transactional forgiveness. He doesn't here say forgive everyone. He says forgive those who repent. Part of the reason for that, if you go back to chapter 11, is because when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, what did he teach them to say? Verse 4, chapter 11, Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not to temptation. Our forgiveness models God's forgiveness. Right? Does God forgive the unrepentant? No. But Jesus can say, unless you repent, you all likewise perish. And Jesus then tells us, we likewise forgive those who repent. We go and we call them to repentance, rebuke our brother or sister in sin, and then when they respond, we don't beat them over the head, we don't yell at them, we don't bear a grudge. We forgive as God forgives. In the shame culture of Jesus' day, this is probably the aspect of Jesus' teaching that elicited the disciples increase our faith. They probably would have been just fine in that culture with the rebuke your brother and sister in sin. Our culture's kind of got it upside down. We, we celebrate forgiveness. We don't really have a biblical understanding of forgiveness, but man, we celebrate it. We think just forgive everything and everybody. We, we, have, we stumble over the rebuke. So we don't want to be judgmental. That's the worst possible thing you could be is, is intolerant or judgmental. In Jesus' instance, I think it's his command on forgiveness that elicited the increase our faith from his disciples. I want you to understand this, that we are to forgive as God forgives. What does it mean to forgive? Well, in God's case, it means he will never use what we have done against us again. Oh, there may be consequences for our sin, but once God forgives us, he never brings it up to punish you. He never brings it up and rubs your face in it, does he? As far as the east is from the west, the Lord says, so I've taken your sin from you. And, and Jesus tells his disciples that they are to model that same forgiveness. That where there's repentance, there is forgiveness. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And just because God has forgiven me, I can forgive others. Because the love of God is poured out in my heart, so my heart, I can model the same forgiveness as well. Which again means where there is in the body of Christ an unwillingness to forgive it begins to raise the question, how well do you know the forgiveness of God? Our forgiveness is to model God's forgiveness. And so now as we look at the other side of this, forgiving those who have wronged us, do we model God's forgiveness? What would people learn of God's forgiveness if they watched and looked at ours? Because Jesus won't just simply lay out, if they repent, you must forgive, but he brings it to the most extreme case possible. Because there's loopholes here. Because who's to say when someone's repented? Perhaps I might say, well, sure, if they repent, I'll forgive them, and I'll, I'll know they've repented as I pay attention to them over the next three years. And if at the end of three years it's clear they've repented, I'll be glad to forgive them. Jesus ratchets this, ratchets, ratchets this up in every possible way in this next um, example, even in the most extreme situations. Notice the differences here. So first he says, Brother sins, rebuke him. If your parents forgive him, and if he sins against you, notice the first one is just general sin in general. And what's harder to forgive, sin in general or sin against you? My friend Chris likes to say, "You of all people, me of all people." Well, it's sin against me. So if I see you out there doing something wrong, well, you know that, that's 
grievous, if I love you, I'm concerned for you. But if you sin against me, that's harder, isn't it? It's harder. So against you, he ratchets it up. But not just against you ratcheting it up, but also the, the frequency. Not just one sin, seven times in one day. And now, to clarify it even further, and he says, I repent, you must forgive him. That, that excludes long periods of time for verification, doesn't it? How could you, seven times in one day, if the, if the requirement for forgiveness were to verify, prove it to me, how could that happen? In fact, Jesus simply says, upon the confession of repentance, we are to forgive. I think that leaves room for us to ask questions to make sure that what people are saying, what they mean, is the same thing as genuine repentance, but where that's the case, where their words verify, love hopes all things, love believes all things, love bears all things, we forgive. Now, we can verify as we go. So when my child apologizes and asks my forgiveness for failing to you know, keep their room clean, I forgive them, and there will be verifications to go forward to make sure they really mean it and to help them change, certainly. But that's not done as a punishment. It's done as a loving way of helping them change. We are to forgive seven times in one. I mean, think that through. This is this is radical. Someone wrongs you. It's hard enough once to forgive. They lie to you. They steal from you. They speak harshly to you. Call you a name. Insult you. They borrow something and don't give it back. Call them on it and say, I'm sorry, that was wrong. You forgive me. You forgive me. It happens again that same day. And again. Again. And again. We're at the four. Again. Again. And again. You're like me. You're tempted to say, <laughs> you know what? I've heard that enough. I don't believe you. You have to prove it to me. Nope. Now, if that were the standard Christ were calling us to, there would be no response to the disciples calling from love faith. Repeatedly in the same day. You see, point C, and this is sort of we'll pick up next week, it's going to be done by faith. The standard that Jesus is calling upon for forgiveness requires faith. Jesus is not teaching a first you see it, then you believe it ethic of forgiveness. Prove to me your, your repentance. Do these things, and then I'll believe your repentance. He's not saying that. He's not teaching that. That wouldn't require faith, that sight. Jesus is calling his disciples, he's calling us to a standard of forgiveness that takes faith. We do it in faith. Because I'm going to forgive you, and I could be burned. I'm going to forgive you, and we could be back at number eight. Couldn't we? Our desires to protect ourselves from being hurt. Our desires to protect ourselves from being let down. And what Jesus is demanding here is that we forgive in a way that opens ourselves up to being hurt again. Now, yes, there's room for verification. Yes, there's room for asking questions. Okay, this is the eighth time today this has happened. I am curious, what are you planning on doing differently? Now, I have conversations sometimes with other people. I'm just trying to track what they're thinking, where they're at in their head. But there's an early Christian movement in the fourth century. That you want to know where penance came from. Say the ugly fruit the other option bears in the church history. Christianity gets legalized in the fourth century, and one of the earliest dilemmas facing the now Catholic, simply meaning universal, the lowercase c, Catholic Church, was what to do with those Christians who under persecution had collapsed. Those Christians who had denied the faith, 
given incense to Caesar, turned in the holy sacred books. What do you do with them? Because they were saying, hey, we're really sorry. We repent. And the problem was, with no more persecution, there was no way for them to prove themselves. And you can imagine how difficult it would be. I want to imagine how difficult it would be if you lost your husband or your wife, your son or your daughter, the persecution. They were faithful. They didn't renounce Christ. They were tortured. They were crucified. They were maimed, crippled, killed. They towed the line. They kept the faith. Here come the Joneses. The first whiff of persecution, the Joneses were offering incense to Caesar. They sold out. They were spared all the persecution because of their denial, their faithlessness. The Joneses now, that there's no cost to count, now that all of a sudden them, the Joneses say they're very sorry and they'd like to be readmitted to the fellowship and they want to worship God with us. What do we do? Well, the early church came up with penance. I don't know where penance came from. That's where it came from. Because there is no persecution for them to suffer, they can persecute themselves. And after they've completed works of penance, then we can take their claim of repentance seriously and we can readmit them. But I want you to get a certain sympathy for where that came from because the standard of forgiveness would be incredibly difficult for You mean, Joneses, based on your words alone, I have to believe you're repentant? Yes. That's what Jesus says. Seven times in a day. No wonder the disciples said increase our faith. No wonder the disciples said increase our faith. Jesus' standards and demands for the body, for dealing with sin, are high. They are difficult. God will give the faith. God will give the grace. We dare not move the target. We, we, we need to not tempt our brothers to sin. We need to go talk to them, confront them when they do. Be open to others coming and talking to us. And where there is a confession, there needs to be forgiveness and restoration that models God's forgiveness. I don't know about you, but I am so thankful that the 16th time in one day I'm on my knees telling God I'm seeking his forgiveness for some sin. There's grace. He doesn't scold me and say, what again? <laughs> yeah, right. His throne is a throne of grace. It's a mercy seat. And the Pope boldly come in time of need. And he wants us to model that same forgiveness to each other. Let's pray and ask for God's help in doing this. Lord God, I just pray and ask that you would um, give us the faith to receive this. This is a high standard. It both opens us up to the inspection of others, that others can speak to our lives demands that we be alert in shepherding and guarding our own brothers and sisters as well. It's the end of privacy, autonomy. And yet it's what you've instituted to keep your body holy and pure. Lord, give us the faith to see this as good. Give us the grace to do this, to do this in love, not harshly. To receive it as love and kindness. Let our heads not refuse it. And Lord, give us the grace, regardless of the offense, regardless of the wrong, that where there is confession, where there is repentance, that we would forgive as you forgive. We would be a people known by your grace and forgiveness. Because we are the people who have received your grace and your forgiveness. In Jesus' name.